And by the time I looked up for my device, my daughter had left the room because I was sending her a very clear message that whatever was on my phone was more important than she was. And that's when I realized I had to reassess my entire relationship with not only my devices, but distraction at large, because I'm really honest with you, it didn't just happen with my daughter. Distraction begins from within. The opposite of distraction is not focus. The opposite of distraction is traction. Distraction is any action that pulls you further away from what you said you were going to do, further away from your goals, further away from becoming the kind of person you want to become. So the only way to know the difference between traction and distraction is to plan ahead, is intent. Do we think if we got rid of our technology, people would start reading Chaucer and Shakespeare in their spare time and they'd be super productive? No, of course not. People have always found ways to divert their attention to something else so that they don't have to focus on the things that make them feel uncomfortable. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Growth Path. I'm your host, Michelle Tandler. Our guest for this coaching session is Nir Eyal. Nir is a highly acclaimed writer, speaker, lecturer, consultant, and teacher focused on the intersection of psychology, technology, and business. Nir has co-founded and sold two tech companies and has written two best-selling books, Hooked, How to Build Habit-Forming Products, and Indestructible, How to Control Your Attention and Choose Your Life. In this session, we discuss the subject of his most recent book, How to Become Indistractable. Nir starts by explaining why he cares so deeply about this topic and felt it was worth spending five years writing a book on it. He talks about why abstinence from technology does not work and walks us through what he calls the indistractable model, a framework for understanding how internal triggers and negative emotions lead us away from the things we want to accomplish in our lives. We talk about the importance of self-compassion, how motivation and the desire to escape discomfort impact focus, and tips and tricks for managing uncomfortable emotions like boredom, negativity, and rumination. We wrap with a discussion on time management and how to create an indestructible workplace, team, and company culture. I found this conversation fascinating, and I hope you will too. Let's dive in. Nir, it is great to see you. Thank you so much for coming on as a guest coach on Growth Path. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Uh, Nir, your book that you wrote, Indistractable, How to Control Your Attention and Choose Your Life, is one of the absolute most interesting books I have read in the past at least multiple years. It truly uh, blew me away on many levels. I am Thank extremely you. excited to talk about it with you. Um, oh, I'm blushing, but thank you so much. That means a lot to me. I appreciate that. Thank you. Um, yes. No, very honest. Uh, just, you know, we were just talking about this before we hit record, but I will. So I will share it again. Focus is something that I have struggled with my whole life. And what's interesting is that doesn't necessarily mean that I'm more unfocused than someone else. But it's something that I think about a lot because I have really big aspirations for myself, right? I want my time to be used productively. So if I find myself doing something that I feel like is not productive, I tend to kind of beat up on myself about it, feel really guilty, feel a lot of shame, frustration. I feel like I'm failing myself. And your book gave me a new way of thinking about focus and distraction and, and what causes it and how to fight it. So maybe before I give away all the key takeaways, maybe to kick us off, could you tell us a little bit about sort of why you picked this topic to write a book on? You know, you've already written a bestseller, Hooked, about which I've also read and loved, about creating habit-forming products. What got you excited to focus on distraction and focus? So we are members of the same club here. Uh, I struggle with distraction, and that's why I wrote Indistractable, because it's actually after my first book was published, and I started getting some modicum of success and I started getting asked to do speaking engagements and consulting gigs. And, you know, just, there was just more demands on my time. I found that I had less and less time to focus on what I thought was really important and made me successful in the first place, which was the writing. And I kept procrastinating and delaying and being distracted by all these other things that weren't actually impactful to me moving my life and career forward. And the, the real kind of turning point for me when I had to reconsider my relationship with distraction was when I was with my daughter one afternoon. We had this kind of daddy-daughter time planned. And I remember that we had this book of activities full of different things that dads and daughters could do to get closer to each other. So, you know, do a Sudoku puzzle or a paper airplane throwing contest. And I remember one of the questions in the book was to ask each other this question. The question was, if you could have any superpower, what superpower would you want? And I remember that question verbatim, 
but I can't tell you what my daughter said. Because for whatever reason, I thought that was a good time to just check my phone real quick. Let me do just this one quick thing. And by the time I looked up for my device, my daughter had left the room because I was sending her a very clear message that whatever was on my phone was more important than she was. And that's when I realized I had to reassess my entire relationship with not only my devices, but distraction at large, because if I'm really honest with you, it didn't just happen with my daughter. It would happen when I would say, oh, I'm going to exercise, but I didn't. I'm going to eat right, but I wouldn't. Uh, I'm going to work on that big project, and yet I would delay for 20, 30 minutes doing everything but the thing I said I was going to do. So that's when I realized, you know what? If I could have a realistic superpower, I would want the power to be indistractable, the power to just follow through on the things I know I need to do. Because the fact of the matter is we all know. Who who doesn't know? (laughs) We know how to lose weight. We know how to have better relationships Mm -hmm. with our family. We know what we need to do. We know how to excel at our job. We just need to do the things we say we're going to do. And if you don't know what to do, Google it, right? The information's all there today. So we don't have the excuse to say we don't know what to do. We know what to do. We just keep getting stuck in our own way. And so uh, that's, you know, the reason I wrote this book was was for me. <laughs> it was 100% uh, uh, research is me search, as we say. And uh, the other books that I read in the field, that's what I did first. First, I read everything I could on the topic to try and fix it for myself, because if it's already been written about, then great. But the advice I was getting around, oh, it's all technology's fault. Just get rid of your phone. Uh, technology's melting your brain. You know, that's something that a, a professor with, with, with tenure might tell you, because can't stop using my email. I can't stop checking social media. I need these for my profession. So that's not really useful advice. So I was looking for a tech positive approach to dealing with distraction. And one of the things I learned, by the way, was that I wasn't alone and you're not alone. Because in fact, for the past 2,500 years, people have been complaining about distraction. Plato, the Greek philosopher, talked about akrasia, the tendency to do things against our better interest, 2,500 years before the internet. So the source of the problem is much deeper and much more interesting and much more empowering than saying it's all technology's fault. Right. The part about your book that I loved, uh, first of all, thank you for sharing that story about your daughter that um, that is moving and very like vulnerable of you to share. The part of your book that caught my attention the most is you talked about after that moment getting a flip phone. You're like, I gotta, I gotta go abstinence here. I'm gonna get rid of yeah. the addictive device and get a flip phone. But then you found yourself pulled in other directions. I think you were like, oh, I was reading the books on my shelf or I I forget exactly what it was, but there were other things and you realized, okay, it's not just about killing the phone. Can you speak more to that? That's right. Absolutely. My my knee jerk reaction was, you know, whatever it is that's causing the distraction, that might must be the source of the problem. And so I I did what, you know, they, they some experts recommend. I got rid of my smartphone. I went back to a flip phone. I bought one on Alibaba that just did texting and phone calls. I even got a word processor I found on eBay, this word processor from the 1990s with no internet connection. It's just basically like a little LCD screen and a keyboard that they don't even make anymore. But I was going to just write on that so that I could finally focus because I got rid of all the apps, all the internet connection. And I would sit down at my desk and I'd say, okay, now I'm going to write. Now I'm going to focus. I'm not going to get distracted. Here I go. But uh, you know what? Before I do that, let me just clear out my desk real quick. My desk is so messy right now. Or, or, or let me just take out the trash real quick. Or, you know, there's that book on the shelf I've been meaning to, to, to finish up. Let me, let me just do some research in that book. And I kept getting distracted. So what I realized is that these technologies are just proximal causes. They're not the root cause. Uh, it's like saying that, that the, the stick is what, uh, what, what hits a billiard ball into the pocket. Right. Well, it's not really the stick. It's the player who chooses to pick up the stick to, to make the ball go into the pocket. So it's we have to differentiate between the proximal cause and the root cause. And the root cause of our distraction is not just these external triggers. They do play a role. Of course, the pings, dings and rings in our life absolutely do play a role. But it turns out what studies find that only 10 percent of the time that we get distracted by our devices. Is it because of an external trigger? Is it because of one of these ping, dings or rings? 90% of the time, 90% of the time that we get distracted, we don't get distracted because of what's happening outside of us, but rather overwhelmingly, by and large, distraction begins from within. We call these internal triggers. Internal triggers are uncomfortable emotions we seek to escape one way or the other, whether it's too much news, too much booze, too much football, too much Facebook. We are always going to find distraction unless we know the root cause of these sensations that cause us to look for an escape. Right. 
Yeah, that. so that's a core part of what you call the indestructible model. Can you walk us through that model? Because this to me was sort of the heart and soul of your book that was just absolutely eye-opening. I now am looking at everything in my life through a different lens because of this oh, wow. model. That's, that's so a huge comment. I, would, I appreciate it. I'm really evaluating everything. I'm like, but I'll, I'll, yeah, I don't need to get into it. But can you share with us the high-level overview of this sure. model so that other people can learn from it? Absolutely, absolutely. So let's start with what is distraction? Like, let's actually look at the term itself. So distraction, uh, I thought I knew what it meant. Uh, I didn't. <laughs> that, in fact, it goes deeper than I thought. If you ask most people, what is the opposite of distraction? They'll tell you the opposite of distraction is focus, right? I don't want to be distracted. I want to be focused. But that's not exactly right. That if you look at the origin of the word distraction, the opposite of distraction is not focus. The opposite of distraction is traction, right? We have traction and distraction. Both words come from the same Latin root, trahare, which means to pull. And they both end in the same six letters, A-C-T-I-O-N. That spells action reminding us that distraction is not something that happens to us, but it rather is an action that we take. So traction, by definition, is any action that pulls you towards what you said you were going to do, things you do with intent, things that move you closer to your values and help you become the kind of person you want to become. Those are acts of traction. The opposite, distraction, is any action that pulls you further away from what you said you were going to do, further away from your goals, further away from becoming the kind of person you want to become. Those are acts of distraction. Now, this isn't just semantics. This is super important because I would argue that anything that you say you are going to do in advance is traction. And so we can stop moralizing and medicalizing these otherwise normal, fine behaviors and let people do what the hell they want to do without guilt by saying, look, if you want to go on social media, if you want to watch a movie on Netflix, if you want to uh, play video games, it's fine. It's not up to, to anybody to judge you on how you spend your time. The idea, though, is to do those things you want to do on your schedule and according to your values, not someone else's. So as Dorothy Parker said, the time you plan to waste is not wasted time. If you plan to do those things, great, enjoy them without guilt, right? We, we need to stop moralizing them and let people enjoy these things. On the other hand, what I found was that the real, uh, the, the majority of distraction is not the stuff that people tend to blame. It's not video games. It's not scrolling social media. It's the kind of distraction that you don't even realize is happening. I'll give you a great example. For years, I would sit down at my desk and I would say, okay, look at, look at this to-do list. I've got a million things. By the way, we could talk about why to-do lists on their own are one of the worst things you can do for your personal productivity, but we'll get back to that in a minute. I would look at this to-do list and I'd have that big thing that I need to do, right? The thing that I've been procrastinating on, the thing that I've been delaying. And I would say, okay, no more. I'm going to get started on that big task right now. Here I go. I'm going to do it but first let me check some email, right? Email is a work-related task. I'm being productive, right? Isn't that okay to do? Well, what I didn't realize is that if it's not what I said I was going to do with my time and attention, it is by definition a distraction. So just because it's a work-related task doesn't mean it's not a distraction. More so, that's the worst kind of distraction, the most dangerous kind, because you don't even realize you're distracted. So what happens is we start prioritizing the urgent and the easy work at the expense of the hard and important work we have to do to move our lives and careers forward. So just because it's a work-related task doesn't mean it's not a distraction. In fact, that is the majority of our distraction is in our day. is the things we have to do, but not right now because there's something that we said we were going to do otherwise. So the only way to know the difference between traction and distraction is to plan ahead, is intent. That's what separates traction and distraction. So the model looks like this. You've got an arrow pointing towards uh, the right, traction, an arrow pointing to the left, that's distraction. And now we have two arrows pointing to the middle. These represent our triggers. We've got external triggers we talked a little bit about earlier, the pings, the dings, the rings, anything in our outside environment, not just from our technology. When we think about our kids, right? If we're working from home, our kids can be a distraction. Uh, other people can certainly be a distraction. Meetings can be a distraction. Uh, all, all kinds of things can be distractions from our outside environment. They can be these triggers that lead us towards distraction. And then we have the internal triggers, which I think are the much more important of the two, given that 90% of our distractions begin from within. And now we have this model. Now we have these four points on the compass that we can use to become indistractable, starting with mastering those internal triggers. If you don't master these internal triggers, they will master you. If, uh, and then the step number two is around making time for traction. 
that you can't call something a distraction unless you know what it distracted you from. So that's step number two. Step number three is to hack back all these external triggers. And this is more of the practical kind of tips and tricks. Uh, it, it's, it's not the most important part, but of course it is useful to know how to manage your notifications and things like that. That's hacking back external triggers. And of course, the things that the, the external triggers we don't tend to talk about, like our kids, meetings, group chat, things like that. And then finally, the fourth and final step is to prevent distraction with pacts. A pact is a pre-commitment. It's when we make some kind of rule, some kind of uh, a firewall around us so that as the last line of defense, we don't get distracted. So what, the hardest part of writing Indistractable, the reason it took me five years, number one is because I kept getting distracted. <laughs> and that's why it took me so long. So it wasn't until I finally figured out these four pillars of becoming indistractable that it actually could change my life. And today, I'm there's no facet of my life that's not uh, been uh, improved by becoming indistractable. I'm in the best shape of my life physically because I exercise when I say I will. I'm more productive in my work. I have a better relationship with my family because I'm fully present. I control my time and my attention and ultimately my life. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think it was that internal triggers part that was the biggest aha moment for me. I have mastered the external triggers. I know how to work in a quiet environment and all notifications are off. I am not bothered by the external. It's the internal realizing, oh, right, like checking email. That's not coming from other people. That's coming from me and I'm me avoiding something. And this is actually the part I wanted to go a little deeper in because you did mention in the book some ways to address this, but I, I think it's something that I um, think would be really helpful to go a little deeper on. So I love this line. You can't call something a distraction unless you know it, what it is distracting you from. And you mentioned just now a couple of the different types of things that people want to distract themselves from. Feelings of loneliness or boredom, maybe anxiety or fear or confusion or frustration. There's so many reasons that people may choose to do something that distracts themselves. And you also wrote, the drive to relieve discomfort is the root cause of all of our behavior, while everything else is a proximate cause. I'm wondering if you can speak a little bit more to how to address those uncomfortable feelings that drive to relieve discomfort. What are some things people can do if they're struggling with the internal triggers to become distracted? Sure. Yeah, so let's start with unpacking motivation. Uh, I think this is a really interesting question uh, where uh, if we know what to do, why don't we just do it? And by the way, this is a 2,500-year-old mystery. This is exactly what Plato asked 2,500 years ago with this concept of akrasia in the Greek, when we know what to do, but we don't do it. That, that, that doesn't make any sense. If there's an external force that's preventing you from doing something, fine. But why is it that we ourselves prevent us from doing the very things we know we should do? It doesn't make any sense. And so in order to answer this question, we have to dive into human motivation and realize that for most of us, uh, our conception of human motivation is wrong. That we've been told that motivation is about carrots and sticks, right? Pain and pleasure. Jeremy Bentham said this, Sigmund Freud said this. Turns out neurologically, what we now know, because we can literally see what's happening in the brain in real time through fMRI studies, is that motivation is not about the pursuit of pleasure and the avoidance of pain, as we thought before, but rather it's only about one thing. And that one thing is the desire to escape discomfort. On a neurological basis, everything we do, even the pursuit of pleasurable sensations, is itself psychologically destabilizing. So wanting, craving, lusting, desire, there's a reason we say love hurts. It's true. Neurologically, that's exactly what the brain does. It makes you feel uncomfortable in order to go get that thing that's gonna make you feel good. So what that therefore means, if all human behavior is spurred by a desire to escape discomfort, that must therefore mean that time management is pain management. Weight management is pain management. Money management is pain management because all human behavior is driven by a desire to escape discomfort. So when it comes to becoming indistractable, and and this was the biggest revelation for me, I'm, I'm glad it was for you as well, We have to start with our feelings, not with our phones, with our Mm -hmm. feelings. Because again, Mm -hmm. you're always going to find something to distract yourself because people have always been distracted, (laughs) right? Do we think if we got rid of our technology, people would start reading Chaucer and Shakespeare in their spare time and they'd be (laughs) super productive? No, of course not. People have always found ways to divert their attention to something else 
so that they don't have to focus on the things that make them feel uncomfortable. So we have to understand what are these deeper drivers. So, and there's many different tips. There's um, over a dozen, a dozen different techniques that you can use in the book that you can use to master these internal triggers so they don't become your master. Let me just give you uh, a few that I use almost every single day because I still struggle with distraction, right? I wrote the book Indistractable, but that doesn't mean I don't struggle with this. Of course, more so, I, I need these techniques in my life. And so one technique that I, that I use every day is called the 10-minute rule. And the 10-minute rule, I didn't invent it. It comes from acceptance and commitment therapy. It's been around for decades. And the idea of the 10-minute rule is to allow yourself a bit of space to surf the urge. Surfing the urge is this idea that these uncomfortable sensations, these internal triggers, they don't last forever. Even though we feel like they are, right? When we feel uh, anxious, when we feel stressed, when we feel bored, we feel like, oh, I'm always going to feel this way. I have to find something to take my mind off of that discomfort, right? And that's where, of course, we turn to distraction. Rather, feelings don't work that way. Feelings are like waves. They crest and then they subside. So your job is to surf that urge like a surfer on a surfboard. So one thing, here's what I do almost every single day. You know, writing is really hard work. <laughs> Anybody who tells you they can get into a writing habit doesn't understand the, the definition of a habit. A habit is a behavior done with little or no conscious thought. I don't know how to write with little or no conscious thought. It's hard freaking work. I've written two bestsellers, thousands of articles. It's always hard. And all I want to do when I'm writing is let me do a bit of research, quote unquote, to you know, to go into that topic because I want to make sure, no, I'm, I'm making an excuse for myself because I don't want to feel like writing. Oh, let me just check some email to make sure there's nothing, you know, no, no fires I need to put out. There, I can find a million excuses. But the fact of the matter is I need to write. And so what do I do when I feel like I'm about to get distracted? I'll say, fine, okay, I can go Google something. I can go check the news. I can go check email, whatever it is that might pull me off track, but not right now. I will do it in 10 minutes. So I set a timer for 10 minutes, close my eyes for a minute, take a deep breath, and now I have a choice to make. I can either get back to the task at hand or surf the urge. And I give you in the book of, of, of some things that you can do to guide yourself on this urge surfing. Like what, what do you say to yourself? How do you change the conversation? I call it reimagining the trigger. And so you're, you're literally reinforcing for yourself why you feel the way you do. You're, you're, you're talking to yourself in a way that leads towards traction rather than distraction. So for example, one thing I say to myself when I find myself about to slip off track and I, I decide to surf the urge is that this is what it feels like to get better at something, right? Mm -hmm. I used to say, oh, why are you getting distracted? Maybe you're not a good author. If you, if you were a real author, you wouldn't have this urge to check email, right? Stephen King doesn't feel this way. Michael Lewis doesn't feel this way. Malcolm Gladwell probably, no, they actually do. <laughs> it turns out, uh, I know firsthand. Maybe not Malcolm do. Gladwell. A, maybe not Gladwell, <laughs> no, he does too, actually. I'm sure he does. Uh, I need to ask him. But uh, the <laughs> idea is that you can change this conversation within your own head so that when you're ready, you get back to that task at hand. And what you will find is nine times out of 10, if you set that timer and say, I can give into that distraction in 10 minutes, nine times out of 10, when the timer rings, you're already back at work. You don't have that desire anymore because that sensation has, has crested and subsided. And this is actually a much more effective technique than strict abstinence. When people tell themselves, don't do something, they tend to elicit what we call psychological reactance. Reactance is this tendency that we have to rebel when we're told what to do. And interestingly enough, we do this even to ourselves. <laughs> That's how weird the human brain is, hmm. that even when you tell yourself not to do something, your instinct is to rebel. So you don't want to necessarily have strict abstinence when it comes to distraction. You want to tell yourself, hey, I'm an adult. I can do whatever I want, but I choose to wait just 10 minutes for that distraction. By the way, this technique works very effective, uh, is, is very effective uh, if you're trying to resist that cigarette, if you're trying to quit smoking, if you're on a diet, you're trying to resist that chocolate cake. That 10-minute rule can be incredibly effective in mastering these internal triggers in, in all sorts of domains. And, and what people find is over time, they're building their agency. They're building their sense of, 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 of uh, uh, personal efficacy because the 10-minute rule can become the 11-minute rule or the 15-minute rule. So over time, you're proving to yourself, wait a minute, I'm not beholden to these distractions. I can control my attention. And here's how I'm training myself to do that. So over time, you're getting stronger and stronger at becoming indistractable. Mm -hmm. I love that. The 11-minute rule. Um, I'm going to go for some 11 minutes now to be <laughs> extra competitive with myself. There's something related to that. And, and I, I love the surfing, the urge. Um, that's definitely something that I'm now paying attention to. One question I had about that, maybe this is 
a little bit nitpicky, but how do you know which urges to surf versus which not to? Like the thing I was thinking of is like sometimes I'm I was thinking, like, let's say you're at your desk and you're doing some work and you feel thirsty and you have mm-hmm. water right next to you. Would would you surf the urge of thirst for 10 minutes or drink the water? But then how does that change if you have to get up to get water? How does it change if you're thinking, oh, I, I kind of want a coffee. Maybe I should just walk to the local coffee shop. Next thing you know, you know, you've taken a 30 minute break. Yeah. Yeah. So so becoming indistractable is a process. It's not uh, the, the right attitude is not a drill sergeant. Okay, it's not don't don't have that drill sergeant mentality of, oh, you have to do this because that's not the right attitude. The right attitude is a scientist. What does a scientist do? A scientist makes a hypothesis, runs an experiment, sees the results, and then runs more experiments to, to learn more. So you're doing this for yourself. Okay, nobody's judging you. You're not judging others. It's just for you. So the idea here is that you are going to run these experiments to see what works, right? Which techniques are most effective? Uh, is taking a sip of water a distraction? Maybe yes, maybe no. Is going to the coffee shop a distraction? Maybe yes, maybe no. So it's about experimenting over time and seeing what works for you. So for some people, uh, you know, for me, if I'm writing and I take a sip of water, that's no distraction at all. But let me tell you, many times if my cup of coffee is empty uh, and I know, oh, l- let me just go make that coffee, that's going to be a 10-minute ordeal that for me will take me off track. It'll take my attention, my focus away from what I said I was going to do. But that becomes a, a process of trial and error based on your particular situation. Mm-hmm. I like that phrase just for you. And it reminds me of something else in the book that really caught my eye, which was the relationship between self-compassion and Mm. becoming indistractable. You talked about that there's this sort of myth out there around ego depletion, this belief like, oh, if you spend all day being healthy, then by the time it's dinner, you're going to be like, oh, I'm I was healthy all day. I need this cookie and you'll have run out of willpower. Um, and you wrote that basically there's really no evidence to back this up, that people actually don't run out of willpower. What matters most is your views about your willpower and that mindset matters absolutely as much. Um, and what you say to yourself is very important. So you wrote labeling yourself as having poor self-control actually leads to less self-control. And so what really matters is that you develop self-compassion in this process that sort of, as you just said, just for you as you, you know, sort of live your values. Can you speak more to what else you learned about self-compassion or any tips you have for people who struggle with giving themselves self-compassion, which a lot of people do? Absolutely. The, the people tend to, when it comes to uh, distraction, people tend to fall into two camps. We have the blamers and the shamers. The blamers, they blame things outside themselves. Ah, it's Facebook. It's the news. It's my dog. It's my family. It's my boss. It's all these things outside of me that are causing me to go off track. Those are the blamers. And of course, that's a futile strategy because there will always be these external factors, right? There's never been a time uh, without these distractions in our life. So blaming these things outside of ourselves are not the, the, the right strategy. Then the other side is what we call the shamers. The shamers take it on the inside. They say there's something. there must be something wrong with me. Uh, I have a short attention span. Uh, Maybe I have undiagnosed ADHD. Uh, I'm a Sagittarius. You know, you you name it, (laughs) right? And of course, that's no good either because when you enter into this shame spiral that there's something broken about you, well, that's an uncomfortable internal trigger. And of course, what's the solution to these uncomfortable internal triggers? More distraction. So that that doesn't lead you to a healthy place either. So the right idea here is not to be a blamer, not to be a shamer, but instead to be a claimer. A claimer claims responsibility not for how they feel. This is very important. You cannot control these urges. You cannot control these feelings. Why? Because once you feel them, it's too late, right? You don't control the urge to sneeze. Once you feel the urge to sneeze, you already felt it. So that's impossible. What you can do is to claim responsibility for how you will respond to that urge, hence the term responsibility. So what do you do when you feel the urge to sneeze? Do you sneeze all over everyone and get them sick? No, you take out a handkerchief, you, you, know, you cover your face and that's the responsible thing to do. So it's about how you respond to these sensations. So, so feeling the urge to eat that chocolate cake if you're on a diet or check social media when you're trying to work on a big project or whatever the case might be, there's nothing wrong with that sensation, but it's around training yourself. It's around practicing what you will do in response to those sensations. And self-compassion is a really big deal. We know that people who are more self-compassionate are much more likely to reach their long-term goals because they don't label themselves as one thing or another. 
They just say, look, this is an action that I took. And sometimes when I make a mistake, it's okay. I can learn from it. And this is really what differentiates distractible people from indistractable people. You see, Poelo Coelho, he had a wonderful quote. He said, a mistake repeated more than once is a decision. I'll say that again. So good. A mistake mm-hmm. repeated more than once is a decision. Distractible people keep getting distracted by the same things again and again, and they don't do anything about it. They're choosing to be distractible. Indistractable people say, hey, look, I got distracted. I I still get distracted from time to time, and I wrote the book Indistractable, but here's the difference. When I get distracted, I say, okay, I see what you did there to me, distraction, and now I know why I got distracted so I can do something about it next time. So the antidote to impulsiveness is forethought. That's probably the summary of my entire five years of work on this book. The antidote to impulsiveness is forethought. All of this is about an impulse control problem, right? Time management requires pain management. It's about these impulses that we feel to control these uncomfortable sensations. But the good news is that the antidote to impulsiveness is forethought. We simply have to plan ahead. That if we take steps today, we can make sure we're not distracted tomorrow. So, so one of the things that we really need to make sure we don't do is this, this self-labeling, or at least that we don't do it in the wrong way. And so you're, you're right. I mentioned this study around ego depletion. Ego depletion is this idea that you run out of willpower, kind of like you run out of battery charge on your phone. That there was this theory, and there was some, some research around this, that found that people kind of run out of, of willpower. Uh, and, and then what we do in the social sciences, if a study sounds a little fishy, right, what do we do? We replicate that study. We run it again. And it turns out, as far as we can tell right now, right, science is never definitive, but as far as we know right now, many studies have tried to replicate these ego depletion studies and it found doesn't exist. Seems like ego depletion is not a real thing. You do not run out of willpower like you would battery in a phone, except in one case, except in one case. And this research was done by Carol Dweck. You might've read her book, Mindset, fantastic book. She found that there is in fact one group of people who really do run out of willpower. And those people, and only those people, are people who believe that willpower is a limited resource. That's it. So if you believe that you're spent, right? Well, then you're going to act in accordance to that. And this is, by the way, the same thing that people tell themselves when they say, oh, I'm no good at time management, or technology is hijacking my brain, right? This is a very popular myth we hear mm-hmm. a lot. Technology is addicting everyone. How many times mm-hmm. do people hear that? Uh, do we hear that? Addicted All the time. to Instagram. Exactly. Here's the thing. If the tech companies wanted to get you to use your, your phone more, you know what they would tell you? They would tell you, you're addicted. Because what do people do when they think they're powerless? What do people do when they think there's, it's out of their control? Guess what they do? Nothing. It's called learned helplessness. So we need to fight this perception that we don't have control. It's exactly the opposite. We need to believe in our own agency. We need to believe there's a lot we can do. And it's not that hard. Any of us can do it. That's the perfect segue into the next topic I wanted to cover with you, which is time management. Um, so I love, that you, I love that you bring in all this philosophy. I, I studied uh, a lot of philosophy in college. So you quoted Seneca, the Roman Stoic philosopher who wrote, people are frugal in guarding their personal property, but as soon as it comes to squandering time, they are most, they are most wasteful of the one thing in which it is right to be stingy. Can you speak more about that quote, time management, some of your findings, and um, maybe also why you think to-do lists are antithetical to proper time management? Sure. Yeah. I mean, he, he said it so well. I mean, it's so true, right? How much, how much effort and time do we spend on saving every dollar and cent, right? We, we put our money in bank accounts and vaults. We, uh, we look for discounts and coupons and deals. But when it comes to our time, take it, you know, and, and whatever. Yeah. <laughs> People <laughs> will drive. Little... People walk multiple blocks to buy a pen for like 10 cents less. Yeah. Right, or, or even worse, even they'll say how thought. busy they are. Yeah, we, mm-hmm. we're all so busy. We're all so time starved. Do you know the average American spends five hours a day watching screens? Five hours a day on television yeah. or Instagram. or we, we got the time, folks. The time is there. It's how we spend it. And so this is why it's so important to, to think about how we spend our time rather than our money. Look, you can always make more money. You can always make more money. But I don't care if you're Jeff Bezos or Elon Musk, you cannot make more time. Everybody has the same 24 hours in a day. 
which is why we should be stingy with our time, but generous with our money. And so we, we, in order to be stingy with our time, what, what I propose is that you have to plan ahead. Uh, and this is not a technique that I invented. In fact, there's thousands of peer-reviewed studies showing about the importance of, of, of using what's called an implementation intention, which is just a fancy way of saying, planning out what you're going to do and when you're going to do it. Because remember, you can't call something a distraction unless you know what it distracted you from. So if you have a big open blank calendar, maybe a few appointments or meetings in there, you can't say you got distracted <laughs> because mm -hmm. what did you get distracted from? So what we have to do is to use what's called a time box calendar. And so this technique is much, much better than just using a to-do list. Now, just to be clear, I'm not against taking stuff out of your brain and writing it on a piece of paper in an app. That's very good. The problem is that's step one. Most people stop right there and they are they become victims to what I call the tyranny of the to-do list. The tyranny of the to-do list is this, is this feeling that we all have had if you have used a to-do list in the past where you come home from work, it's been a busy day, you feel like you've been productive, and yet you look at your to-do list and you still have a million things you haven't finished, okay? That feels awful. And so even when you want to just relax, you want to just be with your family, you want to watch a movie on Netflix or whatever, you feel this guilt, this shame that you haven't done all those other things and you can't even enjoy the leisure time you have. And so there's a, a few reasons why to-do lists on their own are horrible. One, one of the biggest reasons is that there's no constraints, right? A to-do list, you could add more and more and more and more and more to, right? And so what happens? You get home at the end of the day and you see all these things you haven't accomplished and now you're reinforcing your self-image as someone who doesn't do what they say they're going to do loser and so this become begins to have a very negative impact on your psyche and so that's when you start hearing people say oh i'm no good at time management i'm a this i'm a that i must it must be me no it's not you it's this antiquated time management technique we still use the a much better way is instead of measuring yourself by how many cute little boxes you checked off right? That's, that, that's a bad strategy. Rather, and the reason that's a bad strategy, by the way, is that people tend to tick off the stuff that's easy, the stuff that's fun, the stuff that's no big mm -hmm. deal. Of course, that's not the hard work and the important work that moves us forward. That's, you know, I've known people actually, in, in, uh, as I've, I've, I've uh, worked in, in this field, who literally will write things down after they do them for the joy of checking the box. Oh, <laughs> I ridiculous. do that. I do that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I also okay. put in things like check email so then I don't feel guilty about it. I mean, it, it's, it's dark here. <laughs> yeah, no, I hear you. I've, I've been there. So here's, here's what a strategy I'd invite you to try instead. You're probably already doing this since you've read the book. The idea now is to not measure yourself by how many things you got done. It's not about completion. Rather, it's about doing what you said you were going to do for as long as you said you would without distraction. That's it. It's not about finishing the task. It's about doing whatever it is you said you were going to do in that time box for as long as you said you would without distraction. I don't care if it's 15 minutes, 20, it doesn't matter. Just do that one task. Now, here's the kicker. People who use that technique, people who simply measure themselves by their ability to stay on that task without distraction, actually finish more. They get more done than the to-do list devotees. So it's, it's a, so it, it, you've got to put that time in your calendar. So time boxing, planning out what you're going to do and when you're going to do it. And I mean for your entire day. Now, you don't have to do this for your whole week right away. When I started, I started just planning my weekends. What would an ideal weekend look like? And then I saw how much better mm -hmm. my life was during the weekends that I started doing it now. I do it seven days a week. But just that simple practice of planning out based on, and we can talk about how to do this. There's a lot more depth here in terms of well, where do you get started, right? How do you decide how to spend your time? We have to look at our values to do that. We could talk about that more in depth. But I'm telling you, once you have that weekly schedule of here's how I want to spend my time, now you can look at that and you say, okay, everything on my calendar, that's traction. Everything else now is distraction. Right. I went into your blog uh, and found your free schedule maker and a Google Sheet template, which I just loved. And you put your own schedule in it. And I thought it was a great schedule. I was like, wow, here is the section for playing with his kids. And then there's a section for waking up and doing your email and having coffee and working out and then working on your blog and then writing and responding to customers. And every, it was scheduled to the 15 minute interval. I love that you clicked a button and you can make your own calendar. Um, I felt very inspired by this. And I, and I was thinking back and realizing, yes, the times I have been most accountable to myself are when I've had things on the calendar, specifically workouts. That's I think the most critical is to get on the calendar. It just so easily can slip away. Um, Absolutely. 
Yeah. I love yeah, and I'll link I'll link that template in the show notes here so that other people can see it. I think it's um an inspiring calendar. That'd be great. And, uh, back... By the way though, that it's just a template. So the idea here, back to this idea of being a, right. a, a scientist, not a drill sergeant, you want to put time in your calendar every week to reassess your calendar for the week ahead. So for me, it takes me maybe 10 minutes every Sunday at 8 p.m. It's on my calendar. I look at my calendar of the week that just passed. I look at my calendar in the week ahead that I've time boxed, and I'm going to try and make that calendar easier to stick to. So you could change things around. If you find, you know what, it was really hard for me to, to, to check my email late at night because I'm too tired for it. Fine, move it around, move it at a different time. Uh, I find right. it's hard to concentrate on doing that presentation or writing or whatever it might be. No problem. What you want to do is over time, you're learning about when those tasks should be in your account. Maybe you have a very busy week next week, you have lots of meetings. Okay, well, when are you going to find time for exercise next week, for example? So the idea is that you're you're evolving this schedule over time. It's not fixed forever. Just yeah. the only rule is you do not want to change it in the day. That's the only hard rule. You can't change oh, it boy. in the day. Once you make the schedule, you got to stick to it. Yeah, I like, yeah. Um, you wrote in the book, limitations give us structure while nothingness torments us with the tyranny of choice. I thought that was right. so beautifully stated. Um, I also you. love that you pulled in another philosopher and German writer, Johann Wolfgang von Goethe, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, I believe. Perfect. Um, who wrote, if I know how you spend your time, then I know what might become of you. And that really gets back to this discussion of values. Um it was really it, it was interesting looking at your calendar. It 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 was felt very clear what your values are. A lot about work and family, mm. um, which you also write about a lot in your book. So, yeah, I think that was um, really neat to see. Absolutely, yeah. I th I th and and by the way, my values don't have to be your values, right? I, I, right. I, I put out there what's important to me based on the kind of person I want to become. To me, that's the definition of values. Values are attributes of the person you want to become. So I, I give people this, this model of these three circles of you, your relationships, and then your work. And the idea here is that you're going to look first in terms of how does the person you want to become spend time taking care of themselves. If you can't take care of yourself, can't take care of others, you can't make the world better, you've got to put in that time, you know, including the things like a bedtime. I used to yell at my daughter and say, you have to get to bed on time. But I didn't have a bedtime. I was a hypocrite, <laughs> right? We all know how important sleep is, but do you have it in your calendar? Exercise, right? That you, you said it earlier. Very important. If you do, if it's important to you, it's got to be on your schedule. It's not just going to happen. Uh, relationships, incredibly important. How many people in our life we just give whatever scraps of time are left over? Well, if we don't put that time in the schedule, we shouldn't be surprised if our relationships suffer because we haven't made that time to be fully present with them. Uh, and then finally, with our work, work can be separated into these two types of work. We have what we call reactive work and reflective work. Most people get very comfortable spending almost their entire day doing reactive work, reacting to emails, reacting to meetings, reacting to notifications. Why? Because then we don't have to think as much. We're told what to do, right? We like the fact that, hey, I don't know what to do right now. Let me check email. Email will tell me what to do. Well, that's, that's not necessarily according to what you think you should do, right? So rather than having all your day be reactive work, which of course, some of our day has to be reactive work, you have to carve out at least some of your day for reflective work. I don't care if it's 20, 30 minutes, you've got to have that time to think. Because if you don't, if you don't have that time to think, can't be creative, can't plan ahead, you can't move your career forward, you're gonna spend your time running real fast in the wrong direction. So at least some part of your day has to be set aside for that reflective work time. Yeah, that's a great transition into the last topic that I wanted to cover with you, which is around an indestructible workplace or indestructible team. Um, you know, a lot of people who will be listening to this are new managers or early in their career as leaders. What would you recommend to a manager or company leader about how they can set up their team for success around becoming indistractable? How can they support um, others in, you know, tr finding traction? Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, I had to, in the book, I had to explain the model first, and then I put what I think is the most important sections in the book, which are how to raise indistractable kids and how to build an indistractable workplace. Uh, because that's really the practical application of this. Because, you know, the fact of the matter is you can become indistractable, but if your boss insists on calling you at 9 p.m. at night uh, while you're trying to, you know, get ready for bed or whatever, 
it's kind of hard, right, to stay focused. Mm-hmm. And, and I acknowledge that. Of course, our external uh, environment certainly plays a role on our, on our uh, ability to focus. So what do you do? Well, this is where we have to build what's called an indistractable workplace. And so I profile companies that have made this transition. Uh, and there's two in particular that, that I mentioned in the book. One is Boston Consulting Group that I used to work mm-hmm. at. It was my first job out of college. And it was very tough. <laughs> it mm-hmm. was a very distractible place. They've actually since made that, uh, that transition. Uh, they've now become one of America's best places to work as, as rated by these, these annual surveys. Another company that I profile is Slack. And Slack is interesting because when we did surveys on folks trying to ask them what was the most distracting, uh, uh, what was the cause of most of their distractions in the workplace, number one, by the way, was not any technology. Number one was other people. Surprisingly enough, the most common distraction at work mm-hmm. was other people. But for technology, the most distracting technology was group chat or, or Slack was mentioned in particular, but some kind of group chat app. And Slack is the, the most widely used group chat app. And so I went to visit Slack, right? I knocked on their door and I said, I, w- I want to look inside Slack. I want to see what's going on because I expected, look, if these people made this product that everybody thinks is so distracting, they should be the most distracted people on earth, right? right. But that's not what I found at all. That in fact, I found that Slack is, or at least used to be before the acquisition, I don't know how the, com- the culture has changed since they got acquired by Salesforce. But at the time, it was amazing that, that at the parking lot at Slack was empty at 6 p.m. In fact, at Slack, you were reprimanded if you worked on weekends. People were told that's not what we do here, right? That's not our company culture. And the, the amount of productivity and focus that people were able to put forward to in, on their jobs was, was incredible. And of course, you know, the, the, the proof is in the pudding. The company did incredibly well. And so what I found was that the common, there's three common traits of companies that are indistractable. Number one, they give people what's called psychological safety. Here's the thing. The problem of distraction at work is that we can't talk about the problem of distraction at work. It's a problem just like any other. And what we find is that people who don't have psychological safety, the ability to talk about these problems earnestly or, or without the fear of being fired, that means there's probably all kinds of other skeletons in the closet. So what we always find yeah. when people can't talk about this problem, it's just the tip of the iceberg. There's all kinds of other problems they can't talk about. So number one, these companies give people psychological safety, the ability to raise their hand and say, you know what? I, I feel like I'm not doing my best work because I'm constantly interrupted every 30 seconds. I can't do my work well. Can we talk about it? How can we fix it? And when you give people to talk about the problem, you also give them permission to fix the problem, just like any other problem in the workplace. So the number one is establishing psychological safety. Number two is giving people a forum to talk about these problems. So at BCG, they gave people these weekly meetings that they could talk about the, these issues. At Slack, they actually created these Slack channels where people could talk about these issues. They were called beef tweets, where people could talk about the beef they had with the company. And so mm-hmm. what, what would happen is employees would talk about something that, that was bothering them in the workplace. And management would actually use, get this, they would actually use emoji to let employees know that they were being seen and heard. So they would use the eye emoji or the checkmark emoji to say, okay, we, we, we hear you. It's not necessarily that you have to fix every employee complaint, but rather you have to make people make, uh, feel like they are heard about these issues. And the third and the most important criteria was that management exemplified what it means to be indistractable, that culture flows downhill. And so people look to their boss, right? They see how the boss uses their devices, how distracted they are. When you sit down with a meeting uh, with, with, your, with your colleague, do they take out their phone? Or are they looking at their email while they're talking to you? Right? They look at these, these behaviors. At Slack, it was amazing. The first day I, I went to visit headquarters, in big pink neon letters, they had written on the walls of the company canteen, where, you know, where people got together for lunch and meetings and stuff. It said, work hard and go home. <laughs> Not the kind of message you would expect to see at a hard-charging Silicon Valley company, but that's exactly it. The ethos of the company was to respect people's time and attention. And leadership from Stuart Butterfield, the CEO on down, exemplified that trait. So those are the three traits to becoming indistractable. Another quick tip, if, if you say, okay, yeah, but I'm not in senior management. I, I can't change the company culture. If you are in senior management, you know, here, I just served it to you on a silver platter. You can, you can read more about exactly how to do this in indistractable, but this is the three tenets. But if you're not in management, what can you do? One technique that you can use is to, to manage up. How do you manage up when you make a time box calendar? Okay, so we talked about earlier how you're, you're literally going to plan out every minute of your, of your waking day. You have now a physical artifact. Okay, you have something that you can show your boss. You, yeah. So what I advise is that you do what's called schedule syncing. 
you sit down with them, maybe Monday morning, you sit down with them and say, hey boss, can I have 15 minutes with you? I wanna show you how I plan to spend my time this week. Okay, here's time for the meetings you asked me to go to here. I'm working on this project, time for emails, et cetera. Here's my schedule for the week. Now, you see this other piece of paper here? Here's this other piece of paper where I wrote down all the other things you'd like me to do and I need help prioritizing. So what you're doing is you're avoiding some of the worst piece of productivity advice out there. We've all heard it, it's awful. It's if you want to be better at time management, you need to learn how to say no. What kind of stupid, you're gonna tell your boss, the person who pays your checks, right? Who, pay, who, who pays your salary, no, you're gonna get fired. <laughs> That's dumb <laughs> advice. Rather, you're not gonna say no, you're gonna say, help me prioritize it. That's your boss's right. primary job, right? And here's what you're gonna find. If you do this, if you take your time box calendar to your boss, they're gonna worship the ground you walk on because every boss wonders, what the heck are my employees doing? <laughs> right? Like, what's taking so long? So by mm -hmm. showing, hey, look, here's how I'm spending my time, you're gonna have greater transparency with them and you're giving them the opportunity to say, you know what, hey, that meeting there, that's actually way less important than that thing on, the, on that uh, piece of paper you wrote. That's a higher priority. Can you switch those out? Great, fantastic, right? So this right. schedule sync process is a wonderful way that even if you don't work in an indistractable organization, that you can start managing up. You can manage your manager. I love that. That's also completely um, aligned with the values, right? Because you have your own personal values, but also your company will have its values. Your team has its values, what it values, what projects are the most important, what are the deliverables that matter most. And so making sure that your schedule is aligned with the values you sort of, those are, you know, you could say they're similar to the goals or KPIs that you are setting. Um, it makes sense. I think we have to wrap near, but if there, do you have any last words of wisdom you'd like to share, advice? How can people learn more? How can people, like if people are excited about this, where should they go? Yeah. yeah. Sure. So uh, my website is nearandfar.com. Near is spelled like my first name, N-I-R and far.com. And the book is Indistractable, How to Control Your Attention and Choose Your Life. If you go to indistractable.com, there's a free 80-page workbook that we couldn't fit into the final edition of the book. It got too long, so we decided to give it out for free. It's completely complimentary. Again, that's I-N, the word distract, A-B-L-E. So indistractable.com. Mm -hmm. And I'll link all those. I'll link that all in the show notes along with the template to the calendar. This has just been a fantastic conversation. Thank you so much for giving us your time and insights and wisdom. My pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. All right, everybody, that's a wrap for this conversation. If you found this interesting or useful, please feel free to share it with a colleague or friend or two. If you'd like to access the key takeaways doc, click the link in the show notes of your podcast app. You will also find links to Nir's book, blog, and calendar template. If you want to be notified of future Growth Path sessions, please subscribe at www.growthpathlabs.com forward slash subscribe. Thank you so much for listening and hope to see you next time.